Turn to Matthew 19, verses 8 through 12. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone accepts this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Thanks, Jordan. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, light topic today, Jesus and singleness. Talking about singleness today. Uh, After Jesus talks about marriage for a bit, he talks about singleness in this passage. Like we said last week, this is a two-part, really a two-part teaching last week and this week. But my name's Evan. It is wonderful to see all of you here at Park Hill Church. Welcome. Um, uh, My wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church alongside an incredible team, Dan and Alexis, Matt and Aaliyah. I hope you guys get to meet them. Those of you who are coming to basics class today, we'll meet them all. Um, Today is, again, part two, where Jesus speaks directly to some of the most sensitive stuff, uh, some of the most emotional stuff that the human experience involves. Uh, Last week, uh, marriage, divorce, sex, adultery, and today, we're going to really slow down on these five verses. If you were following, as Jordan was reading, these verses are intense. Um, basically, it's Jesus and singleness. It's not just Jesus on the topic of singleness, but it's Jesus as a single man uh, speaking to singleness. So I am, I am not single. I just want to say that straight up front. So I am not an expert on singleness. I realize that. But I've been in pastoral ministry for about 21 years the first seven of years pastoring young people, and then the next 12 years pastoring artists and creatives, most, most of which were single, and then the past two years planting and leading this church, I imagine most of whom are single people. So it's no exaggeration to say that I've spent hundreds of hours pastorally counseling, talking, grabbing coffee, and processing thoughts and dreams, and, and processing the spiritual formation lives of people who are single. Um, Also, I actually researched and read like significantly more widely than normal for a teaching, for this week's teaching than I typically do. And so here's just four four books uh, that I referenced. Uh, I read most of uh, this stuff for this week. Sam Albury, he is coming out with his book called Seven Myths About Singleness on Friday, day after Valentine's Day. I think it's cool. Um, so seven myths about singleness. I obviously don't, haven't read it. it has, it's not out yet, but he wrote a great article uh, a couple years ago that's the basic talking points from this book. Powerful stuff. Abby Smith has a book called Celibate Sex. How do you like that for a title? It's cool. Sean Doherty, Sexual Singleness. That's a short, sweet one. It's like 20 pages, three bucks on Kindle. Amazing book. I'm using a lot of his material for today. And then Christina Hitchcock, The Significance of Singleness, plus a bunch of sermons I could recommend to you. Uh, Also, if you want to come up afterwards, to be honest, I am more nervous about today's teaching than I was about like last week on divorce. Um, Just because I think, to be honest, to the same degree that Jesus's vision for marriage is controversial outside the church, 
Jesus' vision for singleness, I think, is similarly controversial inside the church. So whether you're married or single here or you're younger, you're older, whatever your situation, I promise you this, this is vital, vital stuff for all of us to wrap our hearts around. Because when it comes to sexual expression and Jesus' vision for it in the family of God, understanding Jesus on singleness is just as essential as understanding his vision for marriage. And so needed, this generation, so needed. We, this generation, is the first generation in history to fully form as a majority single generation. I think it's pretty reflected here in this church, actually. Uh, In fact, the American Psychological Association, they've come up with a whole new category of human development. So it's not just like minors and adults, but in, in, in psychology, there's this category in between called emerging adulthood now. People between 18 and 29 typically feel this caught-in-betweenness, this feeling. They're more repeatedly changing residents. They're wondering who they really are while expecting they will just optimistically do better than their parents did somehow. And, and so emerging adulthood has become this sort of like holdout culture. You're holding out. You're keeping your options open. You're not sinking roots. Where 50 years ago, the average age for marriage was 22 for men and 20 for women. Now it's well over 28 for men and well over 24 for women. And there's a lot of reasons for this. A much larger percentage of young people are getting college experience and college debt, which keeps, keeps us searching, right? Uh, and, and then on top, on top of this, as Mark Regneris argues in his book, Cheap Sex, the rise of online porn has, has provided people, mostly men, though increasingly women, with an easy, low-cost alternative to real sexual relationships, which has essentially scrambled the incentives that used to promote the formation of stable monogamous relationships. So now it's this thing called cheap sex, Regneris calls it. So you combine that with emerging adulthood, and it's produced this new equilibrium where the new norm is low-commitment sexual exploration in our 20s before possibly stabilizing a marriage in our mid to late 30s. And so, my friends, I believe we are in desperate need of Jesus' vision for singleness and sexuality. It's the need of the hour to recapture the life-giving vision of Jesus for human sexuality, which is equally expressed validly through both marriage and singleness, according to Jesus. And, and I, I think following Jesus, following his vision for this, it really sets us apart uniquely from the rest of culture. And I think a lot of us feel this, like deep in our sternums, like we feel this ache, this tension. You may be wondering how to reconcile your longings for romantic partnership with your satisfaction in God and where you fit at the intersection of the church family and cultural romance, and the teachings of Jesus, and the day-to-day rhythms of your relationships. Do you have that slide? It's that one that starts, you may be wondering. I mean, it's, it's no wonder, it's, it's really no wonder we experience identity crisis, honestly. As human beings, our identity is largely formed by our relationships, and the relationship our culture is most interested in is, dare I say, obsessed with, is the romantic relationship. The sexual relationship. Like everyone on Facebook is super pumped to broadcast in a relationship. And, and they don't even need to specify boyfriend or girlfriend because nobody assumes they're referring to like a mom and daughter relationship. 
Like, no one assumes that. Like, oh, no one asks, oh, they're in a relationship. What kind? You just assume romance. You assume a sexual relationship. In modern culture, the words relationship and romance have become synonyms. And unfortunately, Western Christian culture isn't much different. And all of this, it contributes to this sense of confusion and misplaced identity. I mean, for many who are single, you're, a lot of you are feeling this, and we want to acknowledge this. You're wondering, like, you see your friends on, on, moving on to their second or third kid. And it's like, ah, oh, come on. You wonder how trusting God works with dating technology. You wonder, should I date a supportive non-believer? What about sexual baggage? What about the expectations? And you're wondering, like, are there enough eligible people at this church? <laughs> are there enough eligible people at the other church I'm going to on the side? <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, what is, like and, what is, and what is the gift of singleness anyway? And do, I don't even think I have it because I'm burning Jesus or whatever. So, like, the list goes on and on. And I can imagine, I mean, I've, just looking, as far as I can tell, well over half, you're going to be feeling this. Uh, and I want to say that's okay. This is absolutely the place to feel this and to speak it out. Jesus is so interested in his authentic spirit family, to be open and to express these things in community so there can be mutual understanding and love that is shared. Um, because, I mean, if the way of Jesus isn't good news for singleness, then we're, mis- we're wasting our time in this room with most of us being single. So what does Jesus have to say? What does Jesus say to this? Again, you missed last week. you got to get that. Um, Jesus' profound vision for marriage, you can't understand singleness without that. Uh, For Jesus, all in one slide, sum it up. The meaning of marriage is to provide an image of the covenant love of God. Male and female form this covenant bond. And together, their covenant bond generates new life. In this way, marriage reflects an image of God into the world. Please notice the capital, all caps, an image. Uh, marriage is, it's not the only image. After talking about marriage, Jesus responds to a key question from his disciples, and this launches us into our passage today. So verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So here's the disciples' question. They said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. So Jesus speaks out against the popular easy divorce culture of his day, and the disciples are like, wow, that's not what we thought marriage was like, because they came from a culture where you can kind of cast your wife aside like property. And Jesus is like, no, there is equality in the kingdom that you guys have not even reached yet. And I'm calling you to that. They're like, if that's the case, it's better to be single because that's hard. To which Jesus essentially responds, bingo. Like, you you, you actually got it. And the the way he responds in the affirmative is by talking about eunuchs, like you do, you know? So, back to verse 10. This, so Jesus start, starts talking about eunuchs. The disciples say to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And so Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs 
who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, so what's a eunuch? Uh, most of us, a lot of us don't know, so uh, I'll just go there. In Jesus' day, eunuchs were male servants hired by wealthy men, usually landowners or kings, to watch over their property. And what did a king's property in the ancient Near East in a polygamous culture include? Wives. So he would have a harem, several wives, and he wanted them taken care of and attended to. Um, so what better way to keep the male servants from messing with your wives? You castrate the guy. And so that's a eunuch. He's a, he's a man who no longer has his, his genitals, and he is a eunuch, and it was very common practice in those days, and they were actually really despised in Jewish culture. So Jesus is using the idea of eunuchs to describe a group of people who will, three things, will not have sex, will not get married, and will not reproduce. So the Jews hear eunuch, they hear those three things, and because of those three things, they're dishonorable. They will not have sex, they will not get married, and they will not reproduce. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, listen, there are eunuchs who are made that way by other people or kings, and Jesus hears are like, yeah, we know those, they're very common. But then Jesus uses this category of eunuch as a metaphor for, for something they've never even considered. It's profound, and we have to let this floor us, just like it floored his hearers. Jesus says, there are other people who are eunuchs who are born that way, quote. So according to Jesus, there are some people who are born in such a way that they will not have sex, not get married, or will not reproduce. Jesus doesn't speak about this as a negative thing. He simply states it as a matter of fact. This is the same Jesus who just a couple verses before quoted Genesis 1 and said, one humanity, there is one humanity categorized in two genders, male, female, that comes together into one to create more humans, and that image is God. So Jesus just said this about humanity. And then, <clears throat> and now here, just a couple sentences later, Jesus is acknowledging that there are some people who from birth do not fit those two categories of male-female in a way that is clean and neat. Jesus acknowledges this. It's profound. And then Jesus moves on to a third category. And, and this is the kicker. This is the kicker for over half of us in this room. Uh, Jesus' third category of eunuchs, uh, is, he's using this category to describe himself. Jesus fits this category. He considers himself in this third category of eunuch. And he says, there are those who will choose to live a life of not having sex, of not getting married, and of not reproducing. For what purpose, he says? What's the reason? Why do they do this? For the sake of the kingdom. And this brings us back to the heartbeat of this whole passage on marriage and divorce and remarriage and sex and all of this. For Jesus, the purpose of life is not happiness. For Jesus, the purpose of life is the kingdom of God. 
It's like this. Human beings fulfill their true purpose when they're so like God's goodness, his character, that they become living, breathing images of their creator. And for some humans, that will mean getting married. For others, that will mean being single. Because remember, marriage is an image of the covenant love of God. For some humans, humans, marriage is the way that they will image God into the world. But in Jesus' mind, is getting married the only way to image the covenant love of God? No. This is earth-shaking for his ears. This, this is a matter of historical facts. Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite theologians, he, he, he states this uh, unequivocally. He says, Jesus was the first religious teacher we know of in human history of all religions to elevate the role of unmarried single life to be a normal, honorable, meaningful, fully significant way of life. Early Christianity was the first religious movement to elevate single life as high, or many argue, higher than married life in the kingdom. So to hear Jesus say, hey, you guys, you don't have to have sex to have a meaningful, mature, fully flourishing life. I mean, you might as well start talking about aliens on Mars, because it's so off the map of their culture. Uh, both our secular culture now, too, it's, it's off the map of our secular culture and unfortunately even our typical U.S. Christian culture. This is why I said at the beginning, I think this conversation is more controversial in the church than what I talked about last week regarding marriage and divorce, uh, for the most part. So here's how it works. Secular culture, uh, secular culture and American Christianity, as it has turned out to be, uh, they essentially say the same thing here. And that's, that's this. In order to be a fully mature human, you have to be having sex. So secular culture says you need consent for sex. American Christian culture says you need marriage for sex. But at the end of the day, they say a similar thing, that a good sex life equals a flourishing, mature human life. Secular culture's view of sex is basically the 40-year-old virgin plot. So uh, I've, never, I've never seen the movie, but apparently Steve, Steve Carell's character is 40, hasn't had sex, so his friends try to fix him and, and try to get him to sleep with a woman. And in the end, he finally, he finally has sex on his own terms, like consensual. He finally does it, and he's suddenly enlightened, and like he starts dancing and singing in the hills to the age of Aquarius. It's like, that's, that's secular's vision, that's secular culture's vision. Of course, most Christians wouldn't approve of that on the surface. But at the same time, traditional American Christianity seems to agree with the underlying message because honestly, if you're not married by 40 in the church, people think there must be something to fix about you. I mean, a common message you hear in the U.S. church it's implied, sometimes it's explicitly stated, you can't be a pastor or in real leadership unless you're married or have kids. And this honestly, honestly, it sounds kind of like a Christian version of the 40-year-old virgin. It's eerily similar. It's this widespread idea that to live a fully mature, flourishing human life is to be in a sexual relationship. But when we really hear what Jesus is saying here, in Matthew 19, we see a radically different vision of sexuality. 
Jesus roundly critiques our sex and marriage idolatry and sets single Jesus followers free to be fully flourishing children of God. Remember, eunuchs were despised in Jesus' day. Deuteronomy 23.1 literally says if someone has emasculated genitals, a man has emasculated genitals, he cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. And so they, take, they took that verse and they, they, they embedded it in their culture in a way that was never intended. And so eunuchs were dismissed from the inner circle of fully flourishing Jewish worship. And so uh, the dominant sexual narrative in that day was get married, have lots of kids, have lots of land and wealth, and that's the fully blessed, flourishing human life. And if we're honest, it's not too far from the dominant paradigm that we feel today. Uh, and it's in this anti-eunuch culture that Jesus says incisively, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, the one who can accept it should powerful from Jesus. And, and just to be super clear, Jesus put his money where his mouth is on this because Jesus didn't get married. Jesus was single. So powerful. And do you think that Jesus didn't have a meaningful life? Like, do you think Jesus saw this, like, flourishing life as like, oh, it's, like, out of my reach. It's, like, impossible to grasp. Like, do you picture Jesus having that feet? No, like, of course, we laugh at that because Jesus literally had the most meaningful human life in human history. And the fact is, the fact is Jesus chose singleness as his ultimate expression of human sexuality. This is significant for Jesus' followers because we, by definition, follow this Jesus. And, and I've heard this pushback. Maybe you're thinking this right now. But Evan, Jesus was God or whatever. Um, Please don't say that. <laughs> Please, that's really bad theology. Um, it's actually, that's actually a form of docetism, which was one of the earliest heresies we, we removed from the church in the second century. Um, it was the belief, docetism, that Jesus wasn't really human, he was just God posing as a human, and his physical body was just an illusion, so he can't really be followed by humans that have real bodies. And that's literally a heresy that we called a heresy 1,800 years ago. So, uh, the whole point of God becoming human was to provide a perfect example of how to live as a true human being and then to die for and forgive the sins of all of us who fail to, make, who fail to measure up to his perfect standard. And then his physical resurrection empowers us to live in victory, more and more victory over the sins that he's forgiven us from. So don't write off Jesus' obedience as, oh, well, he was, he was God. Like, he's, Jesus is God, so he could do it. Like, followers of Jesus don't get to say that. Uh, Jesus was fully human all the way down to his sexuality. And he is to be fully followed and obeyed. As a man who fully expressed his sexuality through singleness for the sake of the kingdom, Jesus had the most meaningful life a human being could ever have. But somehow, um, culturally, Somehow we don't compute this. 
it's so hard for us to compute this, we end up creating church cultures where unmarried people feel second class and where like gay people feel even more second class because where do they fit in? And so here's the point. In Jesus' view, there are multiple ways a human can image God's love. One of them is through marriage, as Jesus defines it. Not as culture defines marriage, but as Jesus does. And then beyond marriage, Jesus envisions a fully meaningful, significant human existence that does not involve having sex or children, but it absolutely, absolutely involves a life of shared covenant love. This is the life Jesus himself lived. Okay, so here, here's the deal. Sex feels good. It's not the pathway to ecstasy. Definitely not. Because honestly, mm, yeah, sex creates about as much heartbreak as it does ecstasy. And marriage is definitely not a guarantee of happiness and fulfillment. I hope you have enough married friends like, to totally know this by now. Like, uh, Eddie Cantor, actor from the 30s, I think, he said, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together, which you didn't even have when you were on your own. <laughs> so that's v incredibly accurate. Also, having kids, having kids, not the pathway to fulfillment. Here's, here's what marriage, <laughs> real talk. Here's what marriage and kids, you, you wanna know what marriage and kids is a recipe for. Marriage and kids is a recipe for a, a whole lot of sleep deprivation and a whole lot of investment of time and energy and your money. Building a healthy marriage takes a massive amount of energy and intentionality. And kids involves more sacrifice than most people can possibly imagine. And yes, absolutely bliss, like blissful moments, always broken up by moments of pain and agony. Um, I love you, Gavin. You're amazing. I love you, Jaden. My, my, my sons. <laughs> They're my boys. I love you guys, for reals. Like, super love you guys. Hopefully, we're all on the level here, though. Contrary to popular opinion, both inside and outside the church, marriage plus sex, not equal happiness. What does a life of kingdom singleness lead to? Enormous amounts of time and resources that are freed from romance and children and free for serving and loving others creatively, leveraging the full spectrum of your gifts to fully glorify the name of Jesus in San Diego in countless ways. The sheer number of single women and men that have shaped church history is staggering and beautiful. And most of us, most of us have grown up in a secularized church that thinks of this kind of singleness as ludicrous and worse than crazy, second-rate human. And according to Jesus here in Matthew 19, 10 and 12, we are the ones who are not seen clearly. And uh, a huge number of scholars, I, I think, argue very persuasively that the New Testament goes as far as to teach that singleness is, is, is actually better than marriage in the kingdom. I know what I just said. It sounds crazy. They're arguing that singleness in a very real way is 
better than marriage in the kingdom. And don't he, immediately don't hear me say that marriage is not fully good. It is fully good, fully revealing the relationship of God and his people. But we come to passages like 1 Corinthians 7, and you hear Paul saying things like singleness is preferable. And listen, saying singleness is better is not the same thing as saying singleness is easy. But Paul teaches this very clearly. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 9. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. He says this. I'll put it on the screen if you don't. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Couldn't be more clear on the preferable goodness of singleness. Now, now, look, at why he, now look at why he says someone should marry. Verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You guys, that's hardly a ringing endorsement. But again, don't hear me wrong. He's, Paul speaks very highly of marriage in other passages like Ephesians 5. Very highly of the goodness of marriage. But we can't underemphasize this. He says this too. Paul isn't encouraging marriage for its own sake. So much as saying marriage is better than sexual sin. He's clear on what he really prefers. Verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. And the idea here, you guys, don't worry, nobody's commanded to be single, but it is better. Of course, Paul says in verse 20, if you're already married, you should stay that way. And he just as clearly says, single people should seek to remain single unless they cannot control themselves sexually. And if we're honest, that includes just about all of us at one time or another. And here's the big why. Why, Paul? Why? Well, at the end of the chapter, he says this in verse 33 and 34. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. A married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. That's why. You guys, marriage is wonderful, but a potential distraction from something even more wonderful. So Paul argues singleness is better if you can keep your sexual desires under control. And in verse 35, it says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And now I realize, you guys, this is like fire your brains, so many questions right now. And again, let's, let's get to the heartbeat, the point. Jesus says, remember, Jesus says, if you can accept kingdom singleness, you should. And Paul essentially says the same thing by saying singleness is better. Why? How? To embrace kingdom singleness is to live in full anticipation of the new creation. A truer expression of covenant love than we can ever know in this life. The New Testament describes this as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's what all of our desires were actually meant to lead to. In the kingdom of God, marriage is a temporary signpost that points to the real thing. Full, 
unimaginably pure intimacy with the true eternal family of Jesus. And kingdom singleness says, okay, I get it, I got it. I'm focusing all of my present energy, time, gifting, and resources on that future intimacy alone. I am undeterred right now. C.S. Lewis, he talks about <laughs> a kid that asked his dad, hey dad, what is sex even, why? What's the, why do you even do that? Is there chocolate involved or something? And the dad's like, oh, not necessarily, no. But, uh, <clears throat> and, and, the dad, and the dad says, the dad says, no, it's better, it's way better, there's no chocolate. And the kid hears absence of chocolate, not into it. Because he has no capacity for understanding the better thing. And for us, just sub out sex for our chocolate, what is this better thing? Singleness says, whatever it is, I'm dead set on it. As wonderful as marriage is, it's the appetizer before the main course, or as Sam Albury calls it, the trailer for the movie, which is the movie, the full eternal intimacy of the new creation community where there'll be no longer marriage, as hard as that is to imagine. If you, if you have a bad marriage, that might be easier to imagine. Um, if your marriage is great, it might be a touch sad. So at the heart of Jesus' marriage is this earth-shaking open door. You do not have to get married in order to be a rock star in the kingdom of God. Fully flourishing. This is so controversial and so powerful. When the, when's the last time you met someone? When's the last time you met someone who could but didn't because they had a vision for God? How many of you can think of that person who's so pulled into the beauty of Jesus that you're like, who are you? What are you up to? I want in on that. What is going on in your life? This is the call for all of you who are single. Whether or not marriage is in your future, lean into that better thing that is the kingdom of God. Don't let culture's twisted definitions of romance and identity get in the way of fully living into God's heart. I believe that's a word for many of us today. Jesus makes you this promise alongside Isaiah. Isaiah said this. He says, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Which is why Jesus and Paul can say this is a hard word. And if you can receive it, you should. Because it comes with great reward. So where do we go from here? We're gonna to come to the table of Jesus in a minute. And a couple takeaways for us to reflect on. I'm gonna do three for singles, and then six quick thoughts for all of us. I'm just gonna go through these real quick. And, and the, the, heart of, the heart behind these, you guys, isn't to just list a bunch of housekeeping rules or whatever. The heart is so that we can see one another and relate to one another fully understanding the situations we find ourselves in and not just walk in the doors of a church or sign up for a community of people that are like you, just a bunch of couples or just a bunch of singles or whatever. The heart of this is that we see each other fully and truly be the kind of family 
where there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor non-Jew, married nor divorced, nor single, nor, but all are one in Christ. This is, this is toward that end, and, nor dogs. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's, I love that guy. So first, for singles. First, for singles. Number one, live life to the full, whatever your situation So one way to think about this, if God, an angel, or the Bible, or whatever, suddenly told you that you were going to remain signal for the rest of your life, how would that affect you? Would you you live your life differently? Are there dreams? Do you have dreams or callings that you'd suddenly, suddenly do? You've been putting them off, but now you do them. That's the idea here. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't do anything differently. Or maybe you'd finally get onto certain things, make different choices about where you live, what you do, church involvement, family life, friendships. The point, don't miss out on anything that God has for you because you're waiting to get married first. See marriage as a bonus, not as a requirement for fully living. If you don't get married, absolutely they can be pain, there can be pain involved in that but at least you won't be missing out on living life to the full. Don't let being single hold you back from fulfilling God's call, whatever that might be for you. Honestly, um, often marriage makes things harder, not easier. It doesn't fix your problems. Because if, if having a marriage or a relationship is your goal, then being single can only be about coping. And that's, not a, that's not living fully. It can only be about coping as best you can for as quick as possible. Honestly, actually, <laughs> learning to live a content and full life in God will benefit any future marriage you enter anyways. So number two, healthy and fulfilled singleness doesn't just happen. Commit to community. So we as Park Hill leaders, we realize marriage prep courses and marriage retreats and couples counseling, you go, that's all really important because marriage needs good prep. Newsflash, so does singleness. Singleness needs good prep just as much. This is where Park Hill communities are vital for the life of the church. So commit, this commit to a community. Um, This is what they're for. It's great, like maybe you are in one, Maybe you're in a Park Hill community, awesome that you signed up for one, awesome that your leader knows your name, um, and you show up whenever you can or whatever, but here's the deal, as your leaders, with whatever authority we have in your life, we want to say this, let us call you to commit to community to the point where you can't just like bail without actually physically calling on the phone to say sorry. What if that was like an agreed upon rule? Like, no, you, like, you, you can't just, like, have a conflict, so you text one or two people in your community, like, oh, hey, sorry, I can't make it tonight after all. Please let everyone know. Emoji, emoji, sad face hearts, TTYL. <laughs> Bye, I'm not, I'll see you next time or whatever. How about make that, you can't do that. Call. I am so sorry. You are my people. I am your people. And we wonder, but, but we're so averse to that. We, and we wonder why, we're, why we feel so detached and isolated and longing for emotional and relational connection. Healthy, fulfilled singleness doesn't just happen. Uh, just like health and fulfillment doesn't happen by osmosis for any of us. Uh, 
so commit to community. And then the third thing uh, that's specifically geared for singles, number three, uh, you can live without sex, but you can't live without intimacy. And it's good for all of us to hear this, not just singles. You can live without sex, you can't live without intimacy. If you're so compelled by the life of Jesus that you hear his call to commit to celibacy for the foreseeable future, there's no way you can do that without inviting other celibates into your life, which, which requires you to speak out your covenant commitment with the Lord. It requires you to divulge these things that are deeply within you. This isn't just for accountability. It's for intimacy. Accountability is great. Intimacy is better. Sandy and I are so thankful for the single men and women in our community. I mean, having them over at our house and all hours of the night, it feels like family. And having them in our community has changed us in beautiful ways. Not exaggerating, it's beautiful. Finally, for the whole church, we need a vision for how to live well together. So here's a few thoughts for all of us. And these go quicker. Number one, let's think of singleness as a way of life for all. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, we will all be single at one time. Some of us more than once, especially in an age when so many marriages fail. So be thinking of singleness as a way of life for all at one point or another. Number two, consider the possibility that single and quite possibly married people might consider living together in intentional communities, sharing their lives together in both deep and shallow ways. It's not just about the deep talks once a week. It's about, hey, you wanna do dishes or me? It's the deep and the shallow. This actually might be the single biggest change we need to make in church. Rather than seeing singleness as being on your own and marriage as being something together, everyone needs people to share their lives with. So number three, don't imply that singleness is second best, even if you're trying to be nice. This is like, oh, it's not too late. You'll meet someone. It's like that. Don't do that. Comments like these are our own projections on them. Don't assume a single person is waiting for something to happen. They may be simply enjoying life and serving God right now. Number four, don't regularly ask for someone's relationship status. It'd be kind of rude if like, single people asked intimate questions of married people, wouldn't it? Like if someone wants to show me about, if someone wants to tell me information about their relationship, they're perfectly capable of doing so without me asking for it. Also, <clears throat> on that, uh, don't ask someone why they don't have, why they, why they are single, why they don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You might mean well, but this can actually make it worse because there might be a really good or painful reason why they are not in a relationship. And then number five, this one's a big one. Be very cautious about matchmaking. Especially if you're introducing people for the first time, like, hey, meet so-and-so, hey. Don't fill in more info at that moment. Uh, Same-sex attracted people find this especially fatiguing. I know it sounds crazy, but guess what? The best way to find out what a person wants is to take the time to find out what that person wants. 
in a relationship with that person. Um, and then number six, last one, don't assume single people, this is so big, don't assume single people have lots more free time to serve in church or less stressful lives than married people. I remember talking to a very sweet single man who is the, the sound tech at our church, such a joy. And uh, he uh, was in Portland. I remember saying something totally thoughtless. And I said, hey, man, like, because he kept saying, I'm busy, I can't do that, and I'm busy, can't do that, I'm busy, can't do that. And I'm like, I just went like, why are you busy? You don't even, you're not single or whatever. I said something super just tasteless. And he just stopped, and I, I was his supervisor. So I was like, Evan, I'm speaking to you as a friend right now. That really devalues my time. And me. And uh, I was totally, totally caught off guard because he's so mild-mannered usually. But it really hurt him. And never did it again. Don't assume single people are just looking for things to do. Um, so as we come to the table, this is all... This is what fa this family talk. This is l literally the stuff of family. So let's be a church that has a vision for how beautiful Jesus really is. Whether you're married or you're single. Jesus is our lover. He's our model. He's our comfort and our purpose. Listen, the best marriages will end. Singleness will end end but your covenant relationship with Jesus will never end all of human history is heading to that day that's described as the marriage supper of the lamb you're destined for eternal intimacy intimacy is your destiny and some of you have the opportunity to focus on that destiny now so let's make a covenant with one another to lift our vision from the shallowness of our culture's vision. Let's live in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God who are destined for a wedding, a wedding where we're the chosen. We're the chosen ones in this wedding, and we're loved, and we're brought near, and we're accepted fully, where one day we will all experience complete and total union with God. Jesus alone is one who offers this to us. Let's come to his table together now. Let's stand and pray.